Okay, well, we're going to get uh, started tonight in a new venture here, starting something new. <clears throat> and I don't know exactly how long this will go. I don't know um, exactly how many sessions it'll take just to cover the notes I have tonight. We might get it all done tonight. It might take three weeks. I have no idea. Uh, it's always interesting when you're starting something new like this. Uh, you just don't know how it'll go. So uh, I trust that We'll have a good study together, and you can go ahead and grab your Bibles. We'll be looking at that momentarily, but for these first few weeks, we're actually going to be talking about uh, how we read our Bibles, which is one of the most boring conversations you can ever have in the world. How do you read a book? There's a book written titled, How to Read a Book. Pretty boring title, isn't it? That's not going to be a New York Times bestseller. That's not going to fly off the shelves, but as you think about reading the Bible, could there be any more important book to read? Well, of course not. And could there be any topic more important when it comes to understanding the Bible as to, uh, or, or any topic more important than, how are we going to go about interpreting what these words mean? Well, there's really not a more important topic. So I've actually said before, I can't think of one topic that is more important but less boring than talking about Bible interpretation. <laughs> it's really high on the importance meter, and it's really high on the boring meter. So kind of got to get into the mindset here of what we're doing. Ultimately, this is a study on biblical covenants. Eventually, again, I don't know how long it'll take, but eventually we're going to get to the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant that we see in Scripture. We're going to cover all those, talk about those, make sure you really feel comfortable explaining those to people because that's really important. And they tie into the Bible's overall storyline. All right. So that's really, really key. If you want to know what's God doing in the world, where's this all headed? How does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? And how does all that relate to today? You got to understand the covenants. You just, you just do. But before we can have a conversation about the covenants, any conversation about the major themes of Scripture, you have to start with how you interpret the Bible, how you discern the major themes from the Bible. Because what we could do, of course, is you could come in here, Tyler and I could stand up here and teach you a bunch of our theology. And we could say, here it is. We could put it all on a whiteboard for you and say, memorize it, go home, have fun with it. And that's it. But that does you no good if you're a Berean. Right? What do you remember about the Bereans in, in the book of Acts? How were they more noble than the Thessalonians? Yeah. Yeah, Paul says they were more noble than the Thessalonians because they heard what Paul had to say, and they said, well, let's go home and look at our Bibles. And they checked what Scripture had to say. So that's what I want you to do, too. But again, we have to start with, how are we going to read this book? Okay, how are we going to read the book? And if you saw the email I sent out, I, maybe that was today. Sorry, it was a little bit last minute. Um, we don't have notes to hand out for you guys, but hopefully you've got something to write with, something to write on, and we can uh, go from there, okay? Well, um, here's the opening question. What is the Bible? <laughs> you can't talk about how you read it before or, uh, you know what it even is. What is the Bible? How would you answer that question? Lots of ways you can answer, not one right answer. But what is the Bible? Let's hear... Hey, you know, hard to beat that one. Yeah, that's pretty good. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Yeah, okay, very good. B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. I like that. That's good. Any... 
historical events, has uh, poetry in it, has different prophecy. Uh huh. It's got a lot of stuff in it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, ultimately, it's a book of books. 66 books, in fact. How many in the Old Testament? How many in the New? 39 and 27. Very good, yeah. yeah. So some of your numbers didn't add up to 66. <laughs> Lizzie, what were you going to say? What is the Bible? Oh, very good. I like that. Yeah, we're going to see that from Scripture. Scripture calls itself God-breathed. All right, that's important. Well, here's uh, something else you can add to all of those good answers. The Bible is divine revelation serving as the Christian's authoritative starting point. The Bible is divine revelation serving as the Christian's authoritative starting point. So yes, Scripture, the Bible, is God's holy word. That's a great Sunday school answer. And it's also the Christian's authoritative starting point. You are a believer in Jesus Christ. You've come to know God through the Bible. Is that right? Boy, the Spirit's moving tonight. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, I hope, if you're a believer, yes. Well, if that's the case, then you turn to the Bible for answers to life, don't you? In fact, you start with Scripture when it comes to understanding life. It's your authority. It's your authoritative starting point. It's 66 books, like we said, from God to us. And these books are equally authoritative across the board. That's also important to note. Sometimes people will say that, but not really live that way. These books, 66 of them, equal in authority from Genesis to Revelation. All right? Important to know. And they are authoritative. These books are authoritative in our thinking, teaching us how to judge rightly. Some people say no one is supposed to judge at all. Well, that's a judgment statement in and of itself, right? So it's self-refuting. You can't get away from judging. So since you're going to be judging anyway, you might as well judge rightly. And the Bible teaches us how to judge rightly, how to think, how to understand. And it instructs us in our living. The Bible teaches us how to live in our thinking and in our living. And you really can't separate those two, can you? Your living is the fruit of your thinking, isn't it? So it teaches us how to think, it teaches us how to live. Well, let's look at some passages. i got five passages here that we can examine. Volunteer number one, where are you? Where are you? Sandra, and then Andy will be number two. Sandra, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Andy, Hebrews 4, 12. Volunteer number three, Ellie, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. 1 Peter 2, 1 through 3. Volunteer number four. Sebas, thank you. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Second Peter 1, verses 2 and 3. And fifth and final volunteer to read. Dun, dun, dun. Greg, thank you. Second Peter 1, 19 through 21. All right, Second Peter 1, 19 through 21. So we have five passages we're going to look at. Scripture speaking of itself. Starting with 2 Timothy 3. If you aren't reading a passage, why don't you just turn to all these with us together. 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17. You'll understand this passage better if you're looking at it while Sandra reads it for us. So go ahead when you're ready there, Sandra. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching, for correction, 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 for correction,
All right. So this is where we get that uh, God-breathed term in the New American Standard. It's translated inspired, but Scripture is theonoustos. Thea is the stem of the Greek word for God. Noustos is the word for breath. So God-breathed. Scripture is God-breathed, and we can translate that as inspired. Scripture is inspired. What else do we see in this passage about Scripture? Yes, if it comes from the mouth of God, if it's the breath of God, you would expect it to have some profit, huh? (laughs) Absolutely. And specifically, it's profitable for these four things, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. And what's the end result of the profit of the Bible? What does it say? Verse 17, what's the end result? All right, thoroughly equipped to be adequate, to be complete, ready for most of the things you're going to come across in life. No, it's, it, it's important to note that too. You're equipped for every good work, every, all right? Thoroughly equipped, adequate, every good work. Pretty amazing. Any other thoughts on 2 Timothy 3? Okay. Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. Verse 12, Andy. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Well, that is quite the statement to be made about a book. Even just that very first adjective. It's living. Can you say that about any other book? Did we have like a goose get shot or something? What happened there? Is there... <laughs> okay. I heard some kind of crazy noise back there. Lizzie the disruptor. The Word of God is living. <laughs> oh, my word. Lizzie. Lizzie, Lizzie, we'll forgive you. The Word of God is living and active. Facebook is not living and active, Lizzie. And it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division between the soul and the spirit. And look at that very last clause. What is the Word of God able to do at the very end of uh, verse 12? What's it able to do? Judge. The Bible judges you. How do you feel about that one, huh? The Word of God judges you. And how often is it right? <laughs> okay, that's important to note. Very important. Okay, First Timothy or First Peter rather. First Peter two, verses one through three. Was that you, Ellie? Okay, yeah, let's look at that one. First Peter two, one to three. So that by it you may grow, grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, so this is speaking to our attitude toward the Word of God. Some translations, like the New American Standard, say, long for the pure milk of the Word. Okay? But the, the idea is you, you're looking to grow in salvation. Now that you've been saved, now that you've been born again, you should be looking to grow. And how are you going to do that? What is the pure milk? 
Well, it's the Word of God, okay? And it's also the meat. I mean, Scripture's got everything. Uh, that's why we have, you know, different classes that are out there and different Christian books that are written that'll take you through at a more milk level. And then there are really deep studies. You can go get a master's of divinity degree and you can go really deep. But the longing of Christians should be to get to know the God who saved them through his word. Okay. Thoughts or questions on that passage? Okay. Second Peter, next book over. Two passages in Second Peter 1. The first one is verses 1 through 3. Sebastian, you got that for us? Second Peter 1, 1 through 3. All right, that initial phrase there in verse 3. What has God given us? Well, His divine power has given us something. His divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Again, that's one of those comprehensive statements, isn't it? Uh, the Word of God will equip you for every good work. Every is pretty comprehensive. And here, God's divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life. Now, there's another phrase you can't say about anything else you experience in this world. Like, oh, well, that, that's given me everything I need in life. You can't say that about anything, but you can say it about the Word of God. God has given to us everything pertaining to life and godliness, and it's through what? How do you access this? There you go, through true knowledge of Him. And how do you get true knowledge of Him? Well, that's through Scripture too, right? Through the Word of God, we come to a true knowledge of God, and through the Word of God, that true knowledge we get from God, we have everything pertaining to life and godliness. These are some pretty weighty statements about the Word of God. And then same chapter, the last three verses of the chapter, 19 to 21, Greg. All right, so again, this is speaking to the quality of the Word of God. It's not man-made. The, the quality of Scripture is divine. Scripture has a divine quality. The Bible has a divine origin, and you need to know this. And I love how verse 20 says, know this first of all. All right, when it comes to what you need to understand about the Bible, well, know this first. Verse 20, no prophecy of Scripture is man-made. It's not one's own interpretation. It's not one's own guess. It's not man's attempt at being God, but the prophecies that were given, verse 21, the prophecies that have come to us, instead of being of human will, they come from God the Spirit as men were moved by Him to speak from God, All right? So that's obviously critical to know. The Bible has a divine origin. So again, when we're thinking, what is the Bible? Well, the Bible is divine revelation serving as the Christian's authoritative starting point. Authoritative starting point. Now, let me sum up 
our presuppositions here about the Bible, because we're going to do the second half of the class, we're going to start talking about how we interpret. But let me sum up these presuppositions. We believe that the Bible has been divinely revealed, okay? That's what that passage is saying at the end of 2 Peter 1. Know this first of all. (laughs) The Bible has been divinely revealed. That means the Bible is inspired. We saw that in 2 Timothy 3. That means the Bible is inerrant and infallible. Tyler, what's the difference between inerrant and infallible? Okay, so it's both, right? You can say infallible and inerrant. But yeah, uh, infallible means it's of a pristine quality, basically. Inerrant means it's never going to steer you wrong. I mean, the, the Bible's just never going to err in any way, shape, or form. Anything it teaches, anything it reveals. So it's divinely revealed. Secondly, the Bible is, has been div- divinely preserved. We believe that the Bible is trustworthy. We wouldn't be here tonight at a Bible church if we believed the Bible was untrustworthy, okay? We believe the Bible is trustworthy, that the original, okay, this obviously isn't the original. The original wasn't given in English. I assume most of us have an English Bible in front of us, but it wasn't given in Spanish either, Sebastian. Um, We don't have the original here in front of us, but we believe that through the translation process, through the copying process, God superintended all of that. And the original message is still there, that it's trustworthy. As we look at these words, we can trust them as if they were the original, all right? Now, there are some instances where we know that there have been some issues, and that's a whole ordeal, and I've taught on that several times. I could send you stuff if you're interested about the transmission of the text and how it's been copied, but it's trustworthy. We believe the Bible is trustworthy. Thirdly, we believe the Bible is authoritative. So if it's been divinely revealed, if it's been divinely preserved, we better believe it's also authoritative, right? When we go to Scripture, this isn't the book of suggestions. When we go to Scripture, it's not the, uh, like, weatherman's report. 90% chance that this is what's going to happen in the future. <laughs> 75% chance of clouds and Jesus coming back, all right? That's not what we get in Scripture. It is authoritative, 100%. And then this is maybe the biggest one as far as application goes, fourth and final presupposition about the Bible for tonight. We believe the Bible is sufficient. So it's divinely revealed, divinely preserved, authoritative, and sufficient. That kind of goes back to, uh, oh, what uh, Sebastian read for us, 2 Peter 1.3. Everything we encounter in life, all that we need for godliness, we can have in Scripture. It's all there. Scripture is all we need in matters of life and godliness. Now, this is somewhat easy to affirm. Even when it comes to affirming it, people will hesitate and say, well, what about this? What about that? But I suspect all of us in the room would affirm this. When it comes to living it, that's hard because we got a lot of things in life that we think we need. Well, I can't obey this because I got X, Y, Z going on. I can't believe that because of, you know, this over here. No, no, no. Scripture is sufficient. And so all that we are called to think and do is achievable through the Word. 
And, this, and at the end of the day, the word is all we need for matters of life and godliness. So does that mean, you, you know, you're out cutting trees down, you chop your leg off with the chainsaw, sorry, Melissa, and you say, oh, I don't need to go to a doctor, all I need is scripture, <laughs> okay? Uh, scripture's sufficient, I'm fine. No, that's not what that means. But when it comes to living for the Lord, when it comes to living a godly life, when it comes to thinking rightly, when it comes to accessing truth, all of that, Scripture alone is sufficient. Okay? You don't need other things. Here are a couple of quotes to maybe clarify the point even further. Wayne Grudem has said this, The sufficiency of Scripture means that Scripture contains all the words of God that He intended His people to have at each stage of redemptive history, and that it now contains all the words of God we need for salvation, for trusting Him perfectly, and for obeying Him perfectly. A shorter quote, John Frame, he says, Scripture is necessary, comprehensive, and sufficient to deal with the decisions that we must make in our lives. Sufficient. Scripture is sufficient. Okay, so when it comes to uh, Scripture being divinely revealed, divinely preserved, authoritative, and sufficient, any questions at this juncture before we move on to the next topic? Good. I should mention, one of the things that Tyler and I have stated that we're going to try to do, I don't know how well we're going to do this, we're going to try to keep, keep in mind that it is Wednesday night and that your brain's aren't as sharp as they are on Sunday morning. <laughs> so sorry <laughs> that I've kind of just come out like, uh, yeah, no, I'm not really teaching that way right now. Sorry. I said try. We're going to try to give these lessons in a little more bite-sized chunks, but no promises about this lesson that I just made because I don't know how much it was in my mind when I made these notes. But, uh, but we want to, you know, meet you where you're at, so to speak, here. <laughs> and uh, your, your brain sharp? Okay, all right. Yeah, what's up, Andy? So, in two sentences or less, how is God's Word preserved? I know how to use semicolons. I will use them. <laughs> God's Word was preserved through an imperfect human system of copying. That's sentence number one. Sentence number two will start similarly. God's Word was preserved by His divine power in that system, maintaining the original message through His strategic spread of the Word early on in Christendom. Okay? So I think that's, that's really a key part is early on you had Scripture being copied in Africa, in the Middle East, and in Europe. And you, very early on, you had three text families develop. And you go a thousand years later, and you look, and you got a ton of manuscripts, and you compare them, and boy, they're pretty much the same. There are just very few instances. So anyway, that's what I would say. That's what I'd say. But I have much better material I could share than those two sentences. All right. <clears throat> Any other thoughts or questions? Tyler. Hmm. 
That's very good. Yeah, you've got people today who say they had a vision or they heard from God or this or that, and that's what they've kind of latched their whole life onto. You can take them there and say, well, Peter not only was with Jesus for a few years, he saw him in his glory. And he says, the Word of God is even above that. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Most of the cults have to have something. Oh, yeah. Yep. Or take away. <laughs> yeah. There are people that try to divide the Old Testament and New Testament and pit them against each other. People who are red letter only Christians. And, oh, yeah. Yeah. And if you don't have a red letter Bible, I don't know what you do. Yeah. Melissa? That their meat is spoiled. <laughs> yeah. You don't ever have to hide anything. If you've got a cult with a history, and all cults have a history, you're constantly trying to cover your tracks or to spin something, some historical event that's very much objectively terrible. You're trying to spin it to make it sound nice, and you don't want to talk about certain things, and you kind of got to you know, put things away. When you're a Christian, a Bible-believing Christian, you say, let's talk about it. Let's open our Bibles. It's there. It's a great feeling. I enjoy being able to tell people that if they had an LDS background and say, ask any question you want. Isn't that liberating? Yes, and that is just not a way to live. 
to be able to uh, just openly look at what has happened in the world and what Scripture says. I mean, you look at Scripture, and there, there are massacres in Scripture. Yeah. I mean, that's stuff people want to talk about, and to say, yeah, let's talk about it. Let's open up the book, and let's talk about it. It's very freeing. Yeah. Okay, very good. Well, I want to talk about now another quality of Scripture uh, for the rest of, even, of the evening, the clarity of Scripture. Okay, so we've talked about some things lightly, but I really want to dwell on the clarity of Scripture. And one of the things that you'll perhaps start perceiving here as we go through this class is as we talk about how we interpret Scripture, how we consider Scripture and how we interpret Scripture, you'll start perhaps seeing how our views differ from the views of other Christians, okay? Uh, Because ultimately, when we start talking about the covenants of Scripture, we're going to be talking about how we view it in our theological system, how we view the covenants based on how we view Scripture and interpret Scripture. And that is going to differ, and we'll openly and clearly talk about the differences from other systems. And you might even start picking up on some of that tonight, uh, but you'll see that more and more as this class goes on. But I want to talk about the clarity of Scripture for the rest of tonight, and we must consider how God speaks. We have already said that the Bible is authoritative, and one of the things we could say is that God only speaks authoritatively. You think that's a fair statement? God only speaks authoritatively? Uh, I think it's a good statement, and it's one that our charismatic brothers and sisters who say that God speaks to them or they get a revelation that turns out to be wrong, they had a prophecy and it was wrong, they will say, you know, that God just, He speaks in a way today that's different than He spoke back then. And so today they're not, they're not getting maybe the message clearly or they're hearing from God, but they, they'll say, but that's not the same as the Bible. You know, I got this message from God, but that's not the sa- on the same level as the Bible. I just can't get on board with that thinking. You know, God speaks authoritatively, and authority means one thing. He doesn't have levels of authority. Uh, you know, I don't put Second Peter in the third tier of authority and Romans in the first tier or something like that. Um, if God speaks, He speaks authoritatively. But I think another thing we could say is that God speaks only clearly. And this is a really big point. That's why we're going to spend the time on it tonight, because this will touch pretty much everything we believe theologically. I believe that God speaks only clearly. You'll run across, and you have already, I'm sure, these books and shows and movies that talk about the hidden code of the Bible. Well, if you step back and think (laughs) the philosophy behind that, you think that God gave His Word that everybody can read, but that's not it that for the extra enlightened maybe, or for whoever, they can dig in and find the real message. So what you plainly perceive, words on a page, that's not it. It is down below, and you've got to figure these things out. And you know, the, I don't know if you've seen that meme where it's like the crazy guy in front of the board with the lines, you know, the investigative, <laughs> investigative room with lines connecting people. And he's like, ah, this is how it all works. Yeah. I mean, there are people who approach the Bible that way. Like, the Bible works this way. You've got to connect this dot to that dot, this dot to that dot, and divide it by 666, and then you get this. And it's like, uh, I, that's just, I don't think that's what God did. Because you'd be saying God doesn't speak clearly. His real message is hidden. All right? Well, I think God only speaks clearly. Now, where some people will want to say, some, a lot of Christians actually, will want to say, yeah, but, on this, 
is in the realm of prophetic visions. So you go to Ezekiel. Have you guys read Ezekiel lately? <laughs> you turn to Ezekiel and you say, this is clear. Uh, I'm glad I have a study Bible with the notes that tell me what's going on, because you say this is clear. Or Revelation, that obviously trips a lot of people up going to Revelation. A lot of new Christians will say, I just, I'm never going to read Revelation. I don't, I don't understand it. So how can you say that God speaks clearly when there are all these symbols? Uh, some people will even go as far to create like a new genre of Scripture, apocalyptic literature, apoc apocalyptic prophecies. So you have to use a whole different interpretive method when you go to these types of Scripture that are using symbols, and that interpretive method will include ascribing hidden meanings to the symbols. Some would say, yeah, but there are a lot of people who do it, a lot of people who do it. Well, I recently read this. Um, this is a guy named Paul Lee Tan. He wrote, God did not choose the mode of prophetic visions to make prophecy unclear and ambiguous. Do you believe that? God didn't choose that mode, like Ezekiel. He didn't choose the mode of a prophetic vision to make prophecy unclear or ambiguous. I think that God was given Ezekiel that vision so Ezekiel would understand what's going on and that his readers would understand what's going on. I don't think he gave it to Ezekiel so Ezekiel would say, I have no idea. <laughs> and that the people who read Ezekiel would say, I'm not touching that with a 10-foot pole. Because God speaks in such a way that we would hear and understand and apply to our lives. He's given us all that we need for life and godliness, that we'd be equipped. Well, you can't do that if you can't understand it. So I don't think God gave it to Ezekiel or to us, you could say, so that we would be confused. All right. The meaning of a text, Here's, here, now I'm going to start making some pretty bold statements. The meaning of a text is always plainly there within the text itself. The meaning of a text is always plainly there within the text itself. And this is just extremely key when it comes to Bible interpretation. Meanings are discernible within the context of Scripture. You can discern, say, Ezekiel 40. We'll talk about that eventually in this series. You can discern what Ezekiel 40 means by reading Ezekiel 1 through 40. You don't need anything else. If you've got the Word of God and you've got the Spirit of God, you can understand and accept and believe, okay? The meanings of a text are discernible in the context of the text itself. You can find the meaning there. So, what do readers of the Bible need? What do Bible readers need? When we consider the clarity of Scripture, what do you need? Well, God has revealed Scripture in such a way that Bible readers of every generation are able to understand the meaning of a text by having the Word and having His Spirit. And I'm going to get into more of what this means, but... God has revealed Scripture in such a way that Bible readers of every generation are able to understand. Not just Ezekiel's generation could understand Ezekiel. You today can understand Ezekiel. Not just the people who are the churches in Asia Minor that received the book of Revelation from John. Not just them, uh, but you are able to understand Revelation. So in, when it comes to Bible interpretation based on the clarity principle of Scripture... 
Interpretation is a straightforward process because the meaning is derived from the text itself and the text is understandable. Now, if, if you guys are with me this far, that's good. But I, do want, I want you to voice any contrarian thoughts here. I'm, let me repeat what I had just said so you can think about if you agree or not. Interpretation, Bible interpretation is a straightforward process because the meaning of the text is derived from the text itself, and that text is understandable to us. You with me on that? Yeah, that's very true. And let me tell you, when you start substituting hidden meanings into Scripture, it does become nonsense. Because, I mean, this is what happens. If the plain sense is not the meaning, that means anybody gets to put any meaning you want into Scripture. Like Wikipedia. Like, yeah, kind of like Wikipedia. <clears throat> and when that happens, you're going to get a bunch of different views on what the text means. And they could even be well-intended views. So I'll use Ezekiel again as an example. Ezekiel 40, beginning in Ezekiel 40, we get this talk about the temple that's going to be built, this big, majestic, beautiful temple that hasn't been built yet. Well, we have some brothers and sisters in Christ who believe that the true meaning of that vision is something else. That Ezekiel's not talking about an actual temple, but instead Ezekiel is talking about the church. But that's just what some people say. Other people say he's talking about the presence of Jesus, Jesus coming to earth as a temple. Others say, well, no, it's talking about the church. The church is the temple. And you can get multiple more meanings from well-intended Christians who say he can't be talking about a literal temple because the plain sense is no longer the meaning. See where, the, see where this goes? And, and it's not like those are, you know, evil, malicious interpretations. They're just wrong because they don't want to accept what Scripture has to say. And so they have to come up with a spiritual allegory or a substitute for what is plain in Scripture. That's not good. We're not going to do that at this church, all right? versus things that are solid, actual things. Does that make sense? Well, do you have an example? I think that's always the key because hypotheticals, I don't know what we're talking about. I don't want us to give an answer and say, well, I'll apply that to this. And it's like, oh, don't do that. So You would probably have better examples than I do. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, okay, for example... Take uh, in Galatians, Paul is talking about uh, you've got Sarah and you got Rahab. No, not Rahab. You have Sarah and uh, what did you say? Hagar. Yeah. And he says this is an allegory, and he goes on to give um, an explanation from there that you would never get by reading the Genesis narrative, right? Where he's applying it. But is he saying that event didn't happen? That's all made up, and here's the true hidden meaning of the text. No, it's not what he's saying. So when he uses the word allegory there, he's not even using the, the hidden meaning kind of language. He's saying here's an example you can draw from that. Uh, Tyler 
brought up anthropomorphism just a minute ago. That's, a, that's something that we take not literally like the chair, like you were indicating. The outstretched arm of God, the wings of God, okay? Um, we recognize that there are literary devices in Scripture. If I rise up with wings like eagles, you know, we, we understand that in poetry there are liter literary devices. Revelation 1. Yeah. Yeah. Revelation 19. Yeah. What's the question? Will that happen? Well, yeah. I mean... Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's... Why, well, what... Talking, they're talking about Christ. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I understand using a two-handed sword to whack people if you're wrathful. Right? Yeah. But usually it's held in your hand. That's, that's kind of my point. Yeah. The word of God, though, just like in the passage we just read, is sharper than any two-edged sword, mm -hmm. right? Cleaving. But, but I think in that vision, what we're seeing is Jesus Christ and his wrath yeah. returning to earth right. to judge sin. Yes. Okay, right? yeah. I mean, you can go through the whole thing. He's got yeah, white hair, sword coming out of his mouth, eyes are a flame of fire. He's got the name written on his thigh. He's got a robe dipped in blood. He's on a white horse. Um, you've got all these things that are happening there. If, and this is the real danger of saying, well, that's not really what that means. Where do you stop? Does he even come back at all? Is that whole event allegory? And there are some, I hesitate to call them Christians, who say that. Well, I don't want it to be allegory about Jesus' return. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I don't either. Uh, yeah, right. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, well, then you, if it's not, if only some of it's literal and some of it's not literal, you've got to come up with some sort of standard as to how you determine that. And to me, that's pretty shaky ground. Yeah. Okay, well, we could, we'll look at more as the time goes on. We'll look at more specific right. examples. No, that's a great question. That was great. Any other thoughts or questions on that line where we were headed there? Clarity's <laughs> Okay. We'll, we'll keep plowing away at it. I got a lot more notes. It'll be all right. <clears throat> I'll make it a little muddier. So uh, here's another thing I'll say. Okay, I'll throw another phrase out to you. No additional revelation or extra biblical resource is necessary to determine the meaning of a text. How's that one for you? No additional revelation or extra biblical resource is necessary to determine the meaning of a text. You guys agree with that? Disagree with that? Why is that? You know, they didn't have a study Bible when they first got the Bible. I know. Okay, all right. <laughs> no, I don't know. What part, what, what, what specifically would be the hang up? But are your study notes authoritative? <laughs> are, have they been God-breathed? Yeah. Well, and there are going to be times you disagree with your study notes based on what you understand from the Word of God. Right? 
So if I so if I disagree, hold my position. No, so you, could, you could be wrong, yeah. But what I'm saying is, when it comes to discerning the meaning, when God gave human beings His Word, did He say, here you go, but you guys got to get together and come up with some pretty good commentaries before you're actually going to get it? Because who are the guys, that, who, who's going to be able to write a commentary before there are any commentaries, right? <laughs> now, let's not turn this into a Mandy self-loathing session here. You have a good brain. You're able to use it, okay? Now, let me make a couple points of clarification, because maybe this is where you're coming from. There are obviously some basics to being able to understand Scripture that you've got to have. Like, you've got to be able to read the language you're reading, okay? Duh, all right? Uh, it, so, it's like, well, I don't have to know any language to be able to understand the Word of God. Well, you've got to have to understand some language to be able to read it, okay? You have to be able to access certain definitions if there are words you don't know, okay? Just de defining words, okay? Um, and there are gaps that we should seek to bridge. Obviously, we're thousands of years removed from all of Scripture, more, some more than others. Uh, there are cultural gaps. There are language gaps. It wasn't written in our language today. Um, however, there is no extra biblical resource that is necessary for you to access the meaning of Scripture. If that were the case, we'd be in hot water because we couldn't just hand someone a Bible. Right? You'd have to hand them a Bible and something else. So that's the distinction we're making here is we're saying, look, you can actually understand what God has said without additional revelation or without an extra biblical resource. Now, should you pursue extra biblical resources? Yes, I do all the time. <laughs> They're very helpful. But if all you had was the Bible, would you be able to understand the meaning of the Bible? Uh, yeah, because there was a time when all people had was the Bible. We live in a very privileged time. Melissa. What about, so like I'm reading Job right now, and there, I just read like two verses in a row. Those were both of those that said the like original Hebrew meaning of yeah. They're like old Proverbs that just don't, they don't even know what it meant. Yeah. They're, they're not trying to translate the Hebrew? Sounds like to me like they're, it's maybe a unique Hebrew word that they're not sure how to translate or something, um, which would be a little bit of a different thing. Um, but, yeah, I don't. And without looking at that specific instance, I can't really speak to that. Tyler, do you have a... Yeah, it could be. Yeah, could be. Tyler, do you have a thought a minute ago? stuff. Again, thinking back to the Bereans. The Bereans didn't go home and look at the commentaries of the more famous preachers to correct Paul and say, Paul, you're wrong because I looked at my commentary by this famous guy who's on the internet and he said this. That's not what happened. They went back and looked at the Word of God and they, they compared and they're able to do that because they are New Covenant believers equipped with the Word of God and the Spirit of God and they're able to understand. Lizzie, Andy, Jim. Andy. Um, to your point, Randy, something I found useful is reading different 
um, interpretations of the scripture. Like translations? Yeah. Uh-huh. So like NIV is a dynamic translation, right? It's giving, it's not word for word, it's kind of thought or what the general gist is. Yeah. Uh, New American Standard Bible is more literal, as is the ESV, right? So it, and a concordance helps. I mean, yep. concordances are really useful. Yep. It just, sometimes the nuances of the word are difficult to translate into the receptor language in the English coming from Hebrew or Greek, right? I mean, it's, some of them are really clear, but some of them are more difficult to get the gist exactly of what God's saying, right? So having multiple translations, oh, you know, they said this, or, it, or literally it's like this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't help in all cases, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but it does help, yeah. Jim? I've always been told that the, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. Mm-hmm. And when you read commentaries, I look for people who use Scripture to explain yep. Scripture. Yes. Yeah, and that's important. There is an abuse of that too, though that we'll talk about even, no, maybe tonight. I don't know if we'll get there. But some people will use one passage to try to change the meaning of another passage. But you've got to be on guard for that too, but we'll talk through that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Be Berean. <clears throat> um, so again, we'll just continue to use Ezekiel as an example. For Ezekiel to understand God's message to him, he didn't need anything other than God's message to him. Okay? Um, He didn't have to live after the time of Christ even to see the coming of Jesus to understand the meaning of what God was telling him. Now, that's pretty big. Okay? I don't know. This might really be the part where your brains are getting dull. It's 8 o'clock now. Okay? But I I hope you're taking that. Maybe you're just... Not reacting because you all already agree. But Ezekiel didn't need to live in our time to understand what God was giving him in a prophecy. And you don't have to live in Ezekiel's time to understand Ezekiel. Today you can understand Ezekiel. Okay, So there doesn't have to be time travel either direction. Sebastian. So certainly one aspect is like what Jim was just saying, with uh, the more you know of Scripture as a whole, the more connections you're going to make, and that will make your understanding deeper in the passage. But then there's also this aspect too. When I say there's a clarity of Scripture, I am not saying there's a clarity of all doctrines. And this is really difficult to understand, okay? Maybe I should save this one for next Wednesday night because each passage you look at in Scripture is equally clear. Genesis to Revelation. You don't hit a patch in your Bible like this is the unclear section. It just doesn't happen. It's all the same quality. It's all Scripture. Um, However, that doesn't mean that every doctrine comes through as clearly. For example, the sinfulness of man. How clear is that in Scripture? Is man sinful? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That doctrine, 
No wiggling away from that one, right? If you read three chapters of your Bible, it's clear, okay? But when it comes to, let's see, the details of the tribulation, the great tribulation that hasn't happened yet, the details of how that's all going to play out on the face of the earth, is that as clear as the sinfulness of man? <laughs> can, you, can you go through and say, this is what's going to happen on day 167 of the tribulation? <laughs> well, no. Um, or uh, this is one I use all the time, the Nephilim. You guys read, read about the Nephilim in Scripture? Is that doctrine as clear as the sinfulness of man or the existence of Jesus or the death of Christ or the resurrection of Christ? No, it's not. So that's something you have to come to grips with too. Even though those passages are clear, they're God-given, they're clear. That doesn't mean that you're going to arrive at the doctrine, uh, the, the, the absolute perfect doctrine, and all Christians around the world will all agree. That's just, that's just not what happens. So there's some sort of uh, distinction that we have to make between the clarity of Scripture and the clarity of doctrine. But again, we can talk through that maybe more some other time. But uh, let me close with a few more thoughts. I had some video I was going to show too, but I don't think we'll be able to get to that. Um, let me just close with a few implications here. One of the implications about the clarity of Scripture is this. The Old Testament saints did not need the New Testament to understand the meaning of what God said to them. The Old Testament saints did not need the New Testament to understand the meaning of what God said to them. So again, this is what I was saying with Ezekiel. He didn't have to live after the time of Christ to understand his own prophecy. He was able to understand what God said, the meaning of what God said, apart from any revelation that followed. All Old Testament saints were able to get the meaning of what they had for Scripture. Now, could they all see the significance of what they were given and how it would all play out in time? Well, no. Could they envision all the details as we have them today on this side of the Bible? being composed? Well, no. We obviously have more detail. We have more information. But were they able to understand the meaning of what God gave them at, during their time? Yes. Okay. Now, if you, can, if you get that, if that's the only thing you get tonight, you're doing great. Okay. That's the key, is that they were able to understand the meaning of what God had given them. So today, today, we should not give a higher status of clarity or authority to the New Testament as some sort of blue light as we go back to the Old Testament, or black light, I guess it's called, as we go back to the Old Testament and we say, well, let's take the, the black light of the New Testament and find all the hidden meanings. That's not how that works. That's just not how it works. The New Testament is not some x-ray machine for the Old Testament, okay? The addition of new revelation of course, gives us more information. The addition of the New Testament to the Old, it gives us more information, of course. However, that doesn't mean that the later revelation is clearer than what was previously given. It's all clear. The meaning is found within the passage itself all through the Bible. Okay? I'm glad we have more information. I'm glad the Bible didn't stop with Ezekiel. <laughs> Praise God we have the New Testament. But the New Testament doesn't give any kind of additional meaning to the text of Ezekiel. And it doesn't reveal any hidden meaning in Ezekiel, okay? But it comes alongside and fills the picture out is what it does, all right? Thoughts on that? Can we take the New Testament and look back in the Old Testament for not hidden meanings, but, you know, Isaiah 
they have 53 that just went through. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? The Connections. Fifth, the fifth yes. Gospel, right? Yes. I mean, it's, again, crystal clear. Yes. That Jesus was the one that was spoken of in Isaiah 53. Yep. And, and that's, that's where it comes in. Could Isaiah have had the significance of that passage like we have today? Well, no, he couldn't have. He didn't have the details. Like in First uh, Peter 1, it says that the prophets longed to know of who the Messiah would be and when he would come. Because they didn't have that information. But we do, obviously, and we can go back and we can see with a greater significance in the grand scheme of what God is doing than they could have. We don't want to go back and try and find the dry branch in what, Jeremiah? You, like a... The, well, the LDS. Oh. Right? Well, I'm thinking of the sticks. Yeah, the, the yeah, sticks. sticks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it, that's Ezekiel. Yeah. Yeah. Ezekiel again. Ezekiel's getting a lot of attention tonight. Yeah. yeah, the house of Judah and the house of Israel. Right. And, but that is what a lot of, again, well-meaning Christians do, is they say, well, look, Jesus is the fulfillment of everything. So we got to go back and we got to find Jesus on every page of the Old Testament. I own a book titled Jesus on Every Page. And it's a Reformed guy who says... He's got to be there on every page. Turn to the Song of Solomon and tell me what you got, right? <laughs> we start running into some issues pretty quickly. So um, we got to be really careful that we recognize the meaning is there. It's locked in. But that, and this is the, the puzzle piece illustration I use all the time. So we'll take uh, Jeremiah. You got Jeremiah there as a puzzle piece, big puzzle, Jeremiah is there. When the New Testament comes along, it, there are more puzzle pieces that help fill out the overall picture. John, Romans, 1 and 2 Thessalonians. But they don't ever move or change the piece of Jeremiah that's there. It's locked in. The meaning is all there. Okay? Other books come alongside and fill out the overall picture. Okay? We never go back in and change. Now, this is really important when we start talking about covenants. Because God promised things in these covenants. He promised stuff to Abraham, didn't he? Land, seed, blessing. He promised some stuff to David. He, he'll make you a house, a kingdom, a throne. Okay, can we go back in and start tampering with the meanings of those? I'm not going to do that. So we, we look at later Revelation and we say, okay, now we, we see more of what God is doing and how this fits into the overall program. But we don't go back in and say, what he really meant was this. David didn't get it, he couldn't have, but we get it. No, I'm not going to do that. Okay. There are many people who say that the New Testament sheds light on the Old Testament, and that, what does that imply? It implies that the Old Testament's what? Yeah, dark. You've got to have the New Testament to come in and shine light on the Old Testament. I'm not going to say the Old Testament is dark. It's, it's, it's Scripture. It's, it's clear, right? It's authoritative. It's sufficient. And it, it's interesting with such people if you say, well, let's move, move the timeline forward. Okay, you say the Old Testament's dark, New Testament comes along, shines light back. Well, we have these promises in the New Testament about the second coming of Christ. Do we know if those are going to be legit or not? We have to wait and see what happens, and maybe it'll shine light back and say, well, actually, there is no bodily resurrection of Christians. There is no bodily return of Jesus. We're not going to say that. We're not going to say those are maybe doctrines because it hasn't played out in history yet. We're not going to say that. And so we look at the text of Scripture, and we find the meaning, and we, we hang on to that, okay? I'll play one clip, because we've got enough time. Of, uh, I debated a, a preterist in November. Did any of you watch that, by the way? I debated the preterist guy. 
Thanks, Joanna. <laughs> it's on YouTube. Uh, this, yeah. Uh, anyway, it's not important. Uh, this guy is kind of silly. What'd you think of that, Joanna? Uh, the, the guy, so uh, he's a preterist, which means, uh, you know, that example I was just using. He doesn't believe there's a future resurrection of Christians. He doesn't believe there's a future return of Christ. It's all been fulfilled. Everything was fulfilled 70 AD. Done. We are in the new heavens and new earth now. Okay. So I'm just going to, I'm going to play you. <laughs> well, next week we're going to get into this and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, you know, okay, look at this reasoning that this guy gives. I'm going to show you a guy next week who's a lot smarter than the guy debated. I like the guy debated. He was really nice, but he wasn't very smart. I'm going to play just one minute um, from that so you can hear kind of his line of thinking and why it's important when it comes to the clarity of scripture. I basically just ask him a simple question. How do you understand what it is that God has for you in the Bible? How do you arrive at the meaning? Okay, and so you can hear his answer. I'll go play it real quick. Sorry. Yeah, when, when, when you're reading the Bible, how do you discover the meaning that God wants you to understand? Oh, first of all, uh, fasting and praying, and you got to look at the Bible from the eyes of ancient Israel. So you got to go through the, their documentation. They left a lot of commentary on how they viewed their scriptures. So I would say look at it from their point of view, and then you discern what the scriptures mean. Can you understand the meaning of scripture without those extra biblical Jewish commentaries? I would, I would say a person definitely not in the 21st century. I, I would say maybe with a lot of fashion and prayer, but mainly no, because we live in different timelines, time zones. We, we, we talk different. This is an ancient Near Eastern world. We're in the modern Western world. We think totally different. So I would say probably not, probably not. Okay. Um, 